So welcome to another episode of Late Night with Tamir Benelli. Today we have Ella Waxman and uh, you're studying, go ahead. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tamir. I'm studying industrial and labor relations with a minor in health geography. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and today uh, we have a bit of a, an ominous topic, but my goal is to try to not make it so ominous. We're going to be talking about climate change. and I think you you have some, I don't know if the right word is experience, but I think I, if I'm correct, you were managing like the green team or something in Marianopolis. Yeah, when I was at Marianopolis, I was one of the co-presidents for green team. And then at my high school, I was also involved with the green team there. I was the environment head. And in the past, I've also been on like different sustainability councils for nonprofits. And I've worked on a sustainable innovation on a plot of land in Texas. So it's definitely a passion uh-huh. How, how did you get the, the gig in Texas? So I, at my high school, we had this design and innovation class where it was you had the option to create any project you wanted. And for a while, I had been envisioning sustainable development. So it would be a housing development with multiple components that would make it more sustainable to live. And I came like came across this piece of land that was with it, like one of my family members had it. And so I created a 3D topographic map of the, the land and started to plan different projects on it. And that was a few years ago. It has not been executed yet because the pandemic came along, but hopefully in the next few years, there'll be some things there. Oh, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so to start it off um, right now, would you say, that you're more optimistic or more pessimistic about climate change? I think it's tough because a part of me wants to say I'm optimistic with seeing how many people want to get involved in the environmental movement. But a large part of me is just very pessimistic in terms of what policies are actually going to change and what the future of lobbying is going to look like in especially the U.S., but definitely just all around the world. Mm. So. Yeah, I guess kind of in the middle. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I guess somewhere in the middle. It depends on the day. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of like that too sometimes. Like some days I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm sure it'll all work out. And then some other days, maybe not so much. But especially with some of those, you know, scary headlines that pop up every now yeah for sure but the, that's a lot of the time just to make people yeah there, there's different denier to denial techniques and that's definitely one of them to make people think that the issue is not solvable when it actually is mm-hmm. yeah I think we're, we're actually going to get into that later on but yeah I agree with that for sure so so let's see how pessimistic you actually are so <laughs> All right. kind of a big question do you think like if you had to bet right now, do you think that climate change will end all life on Earth? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> that's the thing, right? I feel like there's all these very um, radical claims that are made. With the, there's a lot of things that I think will end tons of life on Earth, and before we get to that point. But look around us right now; we're already seeing that it's affecting different parts of the planet so you have certain islands that are going to be completely submerged in the next 10-15 years you do have some places where people are not going to be able to live because of the temperatures so I think for sure a large portion of life is going to be affected by it 
I'm not a climate scientist, so I cannot tell you the statistics and the likelihood or the probability that all life on Earth is going to end because of it, but I definitely think a large portion is at least going to be negatively affected. Ne- yeah, negatively, negatively affected. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think my position is that I don't think it will end all life on Earth, but I think that it'll bring a lot of like catastrophes. Yeah. Or like it. I don't know the exact places, but um, I'm not, oh, was it, what's, is it either like Sri Lanka or Bangladesh? I'm not sure. But one of those countries, it's like expected that there's going to be a huge refugee crisis soon. Yeah. Well, a lot of countries like that, you look at the Maldives too, they keep changing. I think the year that's supposed to be completely underwater, but same thing, there's going to be huge, you're right. There's huge refugee crises that we're going to see in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. the thing is, though, that I always have to try to wrap my head around. It's kind of like hard, but I mean, like, like for example, when they say, like, you know, we want to try to prevent the average temperature from being raised by, I don't know, like two degrees or three, like there's all these different like goals or targets. Yeah. But in my head, like, and I know it doesn't work like that. So, but <laughs> when I hear like an average increase of two degrees, I just think like, let's say, you know, it's like a winter day and it's minus 20 and now it's like minus 18 or right now, maybe it's 22 and then it's going to be 24. I think like, so what? But I know it doesn't work like that. So it's kind of like, it doesn't sound scary, but it might be, you know, it's like, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it. That's, it's a good point because a lot of these numbers seem so arbitrary and it's difficult for look at countries it's difficult even for governments to find ways to like to quantify and to make them more practical because at a certain point it's just numbers and people aren't doing anything or it's easy at least for for governments to say they're meeting those numbers when it's not tangible yeah and um, it was kind of funny actually i think for was it i think the paris accord or something that all these countries said like like they signed and they said we're going to do it And then at the time, the U.S. with Trump didn't because they said, like, we know we can't do this. So we're not signing it. And then the thing is, is that in the end, like, I don't want to I have no clue. Maybe some countries have been doing it. But in reality, the vast majority have not met the target. So like there's kind of like a question, like, is there even a difference between those two? Like they're probably equally as bad, you know. Well, I think the difference is when you sign to be a part of the accord, you're more likely to at least try to pass certain policies or at least change certain like industry standards. So imposing maybe a carbon tax or a cap and trade system that at least has some effect. But when you say that you're not going to be a part of it, you don't even have the incentive to try to change. And it just makes it so much easier for a large lobbyist to continue to have power over the government. Yeah, I guess that's true yeah (laughs) yeah I didn't really think of that because I I guess having the mentality could help I mean even though sometimes if it doesn't I guess sometimes it could yeah yeah yeah. well because I know um I I'm fairly sure this is still the stat it was the stat as of 2021 I'd like to say so a year ago but the world's five largest publicly owned oil and gas companies spend about 200 million dollars per year on lobbying um, in an attempt to control delay and block finding climate policy and I think that's just in the U.S. if I'm not mistaken I don't want to 
give inaccurate information. But I know that rather, did you ever take one of Rebecca Lee's classes at Marianopolis? No. Oh, okay. So she was really into talking about that. And there was an excellent one about topics and climate change and talking about different policies and what's going on right now. So it's just really interesting to have, I think, in an education set, like an educational setting, have like students' eyes open to issues like that. Yeah, because it's it's kind of funny if like people are letting them give their arguments on it's kind of like like tobacco companies arguing why you know like there shouldn't be restrictions on cigarettes mm-hmm. like, not really who you want to listen to you know like <laughs> like yeah they, yeah no exactly I don't know <laughs> yeah and um so you know recently like all around the world and we've seen it in Montreal there's all these rallies maybe I don't know if it's every year or every two years or something like that mm-hmm. but do you think that that actually like yields any results or do you think there are other things that younger people should try to shift to that would have a better effect? So I think it all depends on like how you define actual results, right? Because in terms of like global or at least like global policy changes, um, the rallies haven't, I'm not sure like exactly what policies have come out of the rallies, but I do not believe that many, if any, have. Definitely it's helped certain politicians create like very like rich dialogue, but I don't think in terms of actual change, we've seen anything, but on another side, like people like to feel like they're a part of something. The rallies give people like a public place to form a community and usually having that sense of like shared passion and community helps people find the motivation to make other changes, whether they're small in their lives or like to affect industry later on. So I think that there are some positive aspects of the rallies but I also have the opinion that a lot of people especially like in our generation who we follow on social media just like to be performative activists and think that that's sufficient and while like great that you're trying to get a message out there a lot of the time that message lacks nuance and actually causes more damage than it does good what do you mean by causes more damage I think a lot of people just look at infographics and repost them or look at posts on a variety of issues and just without a second thought, not looking into the actual source, not doing proper research to understand, like you said before, who exactly is saying it. So it's like you don't necessarily, it could be for all, you know, like the the equivalent of the tobacco company posting something. So it's nowadays, it's very easy to get like swept into the like social media propaganda of like certain, uh, with like certain people have certain political agendas, right? So it's, it's tough if you're just reposting something without looking into it to know exactly whose agenda you're putting forward. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, stuff like that. Really, like whenever there's those big movements, like with like, yeah. like Black Lives Matter, like uh, like the Israel, like Palestine thing, like when every couple of months there's like a huge wave and it's the same kind of like posters that get shared again and again and again. Exactly. At a certain point, it's like, it's, I don't think it's doing anything. I think it makes people mm-hmm. feel like they're doing anything and they get away with not actually making changes. Yeah. And it's kind of like one of those things where then, people get mad at you if you don't like like if you didn't put like you know your profile is like a black circle but what if you're like actually doing stuff that that were like benefiting that issue but you I think if you're actually that. doing stuff and you're educating yourself and others then it's admirable I just think that uh, it's tough to know who's actually doing that online because everybody just 
acts differently on on the platform. So I think rallies at least give people a physical place to come together. So you at least see who cares about the issue. But then when it's just used for them to make an Instagram post about going to a rally and it's not actually followed up with any changes in their lives, I think at that point, it's better to focus on any level of change that you can do or any type of participation. Like if you just going to the rallies, how you want to participate, I think that's great. I think nobody should feel excluded from having their voice heard in whichever form that is. I just also think that we shouldn't try to make like other people feel bad for um, like not posting online. Like what you were saying before with like people getting angry during like all the BLM movements last year, if you didn't have a black square when actually we can, and we can get into a whole other, I could go into a whole like tangent about this too, but I know you wanted to stick to environment. Uh, but definitely like there's people just like, feel that they have the right to attack others based on what they put online if that makes sense yeah I don't also like with the rallies I remember when I was in uh, high school like in 2019 like a good half of the people unfortunately wanted the rally to happen just so they could like skip class for a day yeah and then like they would pretend like they would have a sign and they would go outside and like walk toward downtown and then like once you know they weren't in like the public eye of like the teachers or whatever they would just go in the metro and go home right so yeah it's tough and I think one issue with the environmentalist movement in the past or like if you look at different like subsections of it right because there are different waves and there are different like types of environmentalists like just like just like how there's different types of feminists just like how there's different types of people that identify with different areas of social justice movement um but I think that with the environmental movement it has been like largely like people have felt excluded from it or like have felt alienated especially if you look at vegan like the vegan movement um because you have some people that are like if you're not doing this then you're wrong and I'm trying to come across where I'm not saying like if you're I'm not trying to say like if you're posting these online then you're wrong I'm just saying if you're posting these things online and you want to be a part of something do the research and learn more about it so that you're putting out the correct things out there and you're putting out things that actually go with what you believe in and not something that you just think looks good on your story yeah I I completely agree um so do you think that there'll be a big shift in I guess in policy or attitude when young people start to replace baby boomers who are currently in charge of big corporations I think that um, until the people that own, like, like I was mentioning before, until the people that own the oil and gas companies and like other large lobby, like lobbyist institution, institutions change, it's going to be difficult to get the changes in industry that we want to see and that we need to see. So I, on a policy level, I don't think having younger people leading industry is going to change as much, um, at least immediately, because just like, first of all, just because our generation is more aware of like what environmental challenges we have to face doesn't mean that they don't have other challenges or other things that they're going to prioritize before addressing these issues. We still do very much have to deal with the fact that we live in like, like at certain parts of the like, um, this like utopia, like environmental utopia that some environmentalists depict can't necessarily be super compatible with a capitalist system so I think that there's a matter there's there's going to definitely be some tensions there where like 
right now we have people that are super excited to get in industry and make these changes, but they're going to have to deal with other challenges too, like how to continue to profit and gain like capital in order to have that lobbying ability. Um, but I do think that there's ways to get there. And I just think that we're not using them fully. Like I think I strongly believe in circular economy system. And I think that it should be implemented like on every level. And I know the Canadian government is like a huge proponent of this right now. So I like, I know I keep saying I'm right in the middle of all the questions you're asking me, but for this one, I feel like I really do believe we could get to that change. I just don't think it'll be immediate. Okay. Yeah, I think it's I think it's tough also because like right now, for example, with the gas prices, like even yeah. a lot of people that were advocating before for like the carbon tax and for like, you know, like all these things like um, a kind of using less and less fossil fuels and transitioning to renewable energy, they're kind of saying maybe we should take a bit of a pause on that so we could help people be able to afford gas because of like the affordability crisis right now. So it is kind of hard because like there are other things going on, right? Other than climate change that also need to be addressed. That's exactly it. Like, how do you feel about it? Do you think we're going to get changes right away when the next generation enters industry? Um, I, I honestly, like, I hope so, but I don't know. Cause like, I think part of the issue is that right now, like the board of directors of like most companies are people that probably won't really feel the effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. they don't really have incentives to kind of do anything to help it but I yeah think that's very that that's a good point yeah because I think also like a lot of people overlook um how huge of a role intersectionality plays in the environmental justice movement so looking at like environmental racism too and like who is affected the most by climate change and like you said board of directors just don't reflect that a lot of the time, although I know now like there's certain pushes in certain companies to make board of directors and just to make companies themselves more inclusive and like better representative. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, so what what did you mean by what, the intersectionality? So like realizing that certain social justice movements actually like there aren't exclusive. So the environmental movement and like the like different uh, social justice movements. So like, like I just gave the example of environmental racism. So understanding that those two, yes, they could exist separately, but there's also, they could also exist together. So finding ways to have environmentalists and have people that want to be a part of a movement to make a change, to recognize that there's different dimensions to the problem. And it's not just the environment that we have to focus on. It's also the people that are being affected, um, the physical and the social environment there's all these different components and it's not just one okay yeah because I, I think also like, I guess you could say that people on the, the lower income end or the um, lo- like how do you say that um like like, like a lower socioeconomic background yeah, yeah like for them it'll be a lot harder to deal with the consequences of climate change right because if you have a lot of money you could like build yourself you know, like bunkers or indoor farms or like all these like, you know, things to shield yourself. You could have like unlimited AC and solar panels and like God knows, right? Like all these like generators from renewable energy. And yeah, but like the thing is that a lot of people don't have access to those things, right? So if like if I don't know, there's a natural disaster or there's 
like you know like their whole town is submerged in water like they don't have anything to do or anything anywhere to go that's exactly it and a lot of the time part of it comes from governments favoring like a, a mitigation agenda over an, or an adaptation agenda um, or vice versa so their their policies only reflect one side of the changes that they're going to feel so they haven't properly prepared for what's to come or what's already here and then another side of it too is like I don't know if you've touched upon like if you like know a lot about like urban studies and like the the NIMBY movements and YIMBY but like a lot of people not wanting certain subsidized housing and like more urban housing in their area so like the not in my backyard and the yes in my backyard so one huge thing that is going to make a difference is having governments subsidize urban housing to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and to incentivize city living just because at this point we're going to have to get used to more people living in cities we're not going to have as many private um, like health homes and city centers because it's just not feasible given how large our population is getting. But you're always going to have those wealthier people that can't afford to have those bunkers that can't afford to have like all these lavish things that are like ridiculous and unnecessary. Um, and they're not going, they're going to like continue to be proponents of like NIMBY and like not want to have people move into these condos or not condos, but like apartment buildings in city centers. Yeah, and sim. I guess it's kind of on the same, um, like type of um, like topic. Um, how do you think that we could balance human comfort and our current lifestyle with protecting the planet? Like, do you think that giving up the luxuries that we're used to now is the only solution? Or no, I think that's a great like, question. Yeah, I think uh, everything's in moderation. I don't think you have to give up all the luxuries you're used to. Um, about two years ago, I became pescatarian just because I decided like, first of all, I just did not feel great after eating red meat. And I also decided I wanted to do something to lower my carbon footprint because I think the, I like a lot of us, I know myself included at for a while was just thinking, I'm just one person. How is the change, like the changes in my, how are the changes in my consumption going to affect like a broader society or like, how are they going to affect more people? But if everybody thinks that there's billions of people that just aren't doing anything because they think somebody else is going to do something bigger. So I think it's about realizing that there are things that you could do no matter how small they are to just make your carbon footprint smaller. So whether that's changing how much um, meat and poultry and like dairy and anything that like consumes large amounts of land and water like how changing how much of that you eat in a week so that doesn't mean you have to become vegan it doesn't mean you have to become vegetarian or pescatarian it could mean that you only eat red meat once a week instead of eating it three times a week it could mean that you start actually composting or um, like I mentioned before the circular economy so finding ways to take things that you otherwise would have just thrown away and repurpose them so if you have like I don't know an old bookshelf that you're thinking about giving away, but you're also about to go buy new furniture, you find a way that you could upcycle it and turn it into something new or sell it to somebody else who's going to get drive like some type of benefit from it. So looking at what you don't use in life and finding ways to reuse or, or repurpose it. Mm. Okay, so okay, so I guess you're saying that we like with small changes, you think it could make kind of like a butterfly effect? 
Yeah, I think a bit. Like, it'll be like a couple of butterflies. <laughs> I think a lot of it also comes from, like, just policy. But it's very difficult to get real policy change, especially nowadays. If you look at everything going on in the States, there's so many things that should I, I'm not going to get too into this because I know that's not what I'm here to talk about today. But there's a lot of things that could have been codified ages ago. There's a lot of policies that could have been put into action a long time ago. And we're still discussing them today. So I think that's why as like youth that want to get more involved and want to see real change, we have to do more than just like saying that we want this change to happen. And we need to find ways to make those small changes in our lives because that's like a good stepping stone. Yeah, because I think anything that would be a big like decline in, in luxury would be very hard to get past in like any sort of government. Right. Like yeah. if someone would say, you know, like I, I think in Costa Rica, they do this where you could only drive on certain days of the week. Like if they tried to do that in the U.S. or Canada, like people would go protest. That's and- it. Exactly. As soon as people feel like they're losing a right, they just go and, and they protest. You look at the mask and vaccine mandates, even like earlier, as soon as somebody feels like their rights are being infringed on, there's going to be some type of backlash from the public. Mm hmm. Yeah, so I guess we have to find ways where it doesn't feel like people are losing rights or luxuries. Yeah, that's it. And I think Canada has already been doing a bit of this, where it's not necessarily like a policy as we know it. It's more like catered towards industry. So that's why like as a general public, we're not as aware of them. But like I know with the circular economy, we are huge on recycling and like or managing like plastic waste and finding like new uses for it. And you look at different companies too, and they're super proud that they do that. So slowly but surely there are some companies that are picking up on these circular economy habits. Um, And I did before we hopped on the call, take a quick, I took a quick look at the Canadian government website just to see what they're saying about the circular economy. And they said that it will reduce 1.8 million tons of carbon pollution, generate billions of dollars in revenue and create approximately 42,000 jobs. So the argument that like dealing with climate change isn't going to be good for the economy or is going to get rid of people's jobs because of how many people work in like fossil fuel or driven sectors. It's like a dumb argument at this point. And it's been overused when there's clearly other ways that we continue to do things that are better for the environment and better for everybody in society. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think like the only thing with that mm-hmm. is let's say you do work, like maybe you're a petroleum engineer or something. And if they were to to stop with fossil fuels, I think it would kind of be fair for like, I don't know if it would be the government or, but somehow to place that person in like a similar position in like the renewable energy sector yeah for sure but also how many petroleum engineers are there in canada i'm actually very curious i have no clue (laughs) because i wonder if that's the thing because the way that um factories at least or like that type of labor has been transformed since the industrial revolution is largely like by applying like taylor like uh, principles of taylorism so just trying to find ways to make work more efficient and dividing complex tasks into tasks that could be accomplished by like low skilled, low, lower skilled workers. So I think it's just going to be trying to find 
places to reposition them. And I think, like you said, it's totally feasible. Um, probably if they're petroleum engineer, they'll have to do some type of training to transition. But if the company, if the, the, the company has green pan- patents already, which I know a lot of oil companies have been buying, but for like wrong reasons, um, <laughs> then that's possible. Or if the government is going to just offer these training programs too, definitely a great incentive. Yeah, because then I guess it would be a lot harder to argue that people would lose jobs. Yeah. Right? Have those programs to switch over. Oh. And yeah, this is another um, like big thing, I think, is that all the time we keep hearing, you know, like, for example, AOC. It's yeah. just like, oh, and like, if we don't do something in 12 euros, we're all going to be dead or something. Do you think that does more harm than good? Because I, I actually wrote a paper about that in, and I definitely think so. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know if I want to hear your opinion before I tell you mine. I don't know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear what you thought in the, like, what was your opinion in the paper? Like, I was basically saying that um, when people see stuff like that, they basically, what happens is they tend to give up and just say, like, you know, like, oh, well, I'm just going to accept my fate that, you know, in 2030 or it's always a different date, but you know they'll say oh and you know what in 2030 the world will end so i might as well just have fun and enjoy it while it lasts yeah if there's an article saying like these are all the things that we could do you know to to prevent this from happening then people are more likely to say okay i could try some of that you know so i don't think it's good to have those like scary headlines like oh you know the world's gonna be on fire by this date or like you know things like that yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I think sometimes little clickbait doesn't do any, doesn't do that much harm. But I think for sure, like making sure you have like positive things you can do instead of just throwing the negative at people. You're right. That's what's going to actually get people to change. Because um, I know right now, a lot of people still try to push it off, like without those radical remarks and say like, oh, it's something I'm only going to have to deal with. And like, hundreds of years so I'm not even going to have to deal with it it'll be my grandchildren or whatever generation is around at that point um and like sure crisis denial is easy when it seems like a faraway issue but like there it has been shown that economists suggest we could fix climate change by spending about one percent of the world GDP now whereas if we wait for 2050 it'll be over 20 percent so I think like statements like that which are a little less radical in the sense of like the world is going to end if we don't do anything. And it plays into the like, um, it like plays into the pockets of politicians, which they do carry, they, they do care about a lot. Then I think you're more likely to also get change on that level. Yeah. And I think it's also causing a lot of, have you heard the term eco-anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. I think because I used to have that also, but thankfully I don't anymore. But but that's like really rough for a lot of young people right now. Like I remember there'd be a point where like I remember I was walking and I don't remember what school it was, but I was looking like all the thing like class of this and like all the years. And I was like, shit, there might not be like a class of like, you know, 2080 or whatever. Like yeah, that's like you. that's like so bad because like, like all these articles that get money every time, you know, like people click because they're scared. They like get you to like so many young people are struggling with eco-anxiety right now so like like they're wasting all their energy that could be used to be like passionate about changing things for the better and instead they're just like living in fear I 100% agree yeah 
Yeah. So, and also, do you have like any tips, I guess, for anyone with eco-anxiety on what they could do to, to feel better? I'm trying to think of something that's nice to say instead of just saying like, I mean, it's outside of your control. What big agencies do, but that's not true. Like there's definitely things that you could do. Um, so I think some of the individual changes that I mentioned before are definitely helpful and it'll just make you feel a little bit more at ease because you know that you're at least making these changes in your life. So you at least can know that in terms of your health, you're at least looking out for yourself in what ways you can. And if you want to try to get larger changes to happen it's a matter of finding the people in charge of certain industries having conversations with them where you're open to hearing multiple sides and you could start by looking at small businesses you could talk to your parents and see what businesses they have they're like they're in touch with um and you never know like it could even be the place where your parents working you just sit down and have a conversation with someone who's in charge of operations or depending on the type of business like in charge of something that has to do with their waste and you just see how they're handling the environment if they're taking it into consideration with their daily practices. And if it's something that really interests you, you take it to the next step. You do a little bit of research. You offer to help them make those changes. So it's about finding ways to take action using whatever resources you have at your disposal. So I was a part of, like I mentioned before, a sustainability uh, council for the Cedars Cancer Foundation. So we would sit down with people of all different ages, all different backgrounds. You'd have board members that actually do work at Cedars and are affiliated with Cedars. You also had students in sustainability at Concordia. You had professors, people who work at the hospital, people who do this for a living. And you have all these minds come together and discuss solutions all from their perspectives. So it's about being open to having these conversations and being open to make these changes and get getting people to be responsive to them. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's um, that's good advice because like if you're actually doing something, I think it might kind of I don't know if like distract is the right word, but mm-hmm. you kind of wake up in the morning and you're saying like I'm doing things that have a chance of like kind of you know remedying the situation. So that's like, exactly that, it. Yeah, that, that will keep being the thoughts in your head instead of like the opposite, right? Yeah, that's it. Because you need to realize that at a certain point, once you've done what's within your power, it's up to like the next level of person, like in whatever organization or government that you're talking to, to make the next move. So yes, there's definitely still going to be a level of anxiety that's there because you're understanding that you as an individual can't change the entire fate of the social justice movement that covers every single continent across the world but at least you know that you can be a part of something and that's why I said like working with an organization you at least have that tangible change which can help you at least feel a little bit more at ease and I know it might sound a bit like you're getting off easy and there might be a sense of guilt that's associated with it but at the end of the day if we all just made those small pushes to educate ourselves and to talk to others about issues like these it would be a lot easier to solve problems like social like social justice problems in general um do you think one of the solutions could be using more nuclear energy because I, I know that's very controversial but there's some people that are very like vocal about it that they're saying like it could help tremendously so i am not too familiar on all the specifics with nuclear energy besides the fact that i know that 
like pro definitely better than fossil fuels um and like uh con dangerous to extract and use to an extent but i know like once it's transferred to household it's not as dangerous so i am not an energy expert i cannot get too deep into this with you but i do think that considering other forms maybe not nuclear but like other forms of renewable energy sources is helpful because what's the price for new like do you know did did you do a little bit of research do you know like um how much nuclear costs compared to solar or wind? I don't really know the cost, but I know that it's probably the most efficient type of energy that exists because it's like such a small amount that you need to, to generate yeah. huge amounts of electricity. So, I mean, but yeah, but I guess the cost could be pretty high of like running those machines and all that, but the cost of the actual energy itself is probably pretty low. How does it work with disposing of the, um, again, not a science major, not a, an energy specialist, so I don't know the proper terms, but like, I don't know what the, the disposal waste. is. What? Like the nuclear waste. Yeah, exactly. Because doesn't it not, can't you not dispose of it? Uh, I'm actually, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but uh, from what I've heard, it's actually not as dangerous. Like I- I'm obviously when I say dangerous, it can be when there's a like a catastrophe, like in Chernobyl or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, th- like the actual nuclear waste, like people think, you know, like the Simpsons, like it's like this green, like liquid. Well, like <laughs> If you touch, you'll become like, I don't know, like mutated or something. <laughs> but it's actually not. It's just like, I think little pebbles of like uranium or stuff like that. Yeah, and I think it, there are actually many ways to dispose of them. But again, I, I could be wrong. But, yeah, so I think it's definitely something that I'll learn, like I'll do a bit more research on to learn about because um, I'm curious to know more. And I think it's maybe that could be a possibility. But I do remember there were other cons. I just can't seem to remember now. I remember learning about that in, in geography and like Sec three, they introduced renewable energy sources. Uh, I think for me, the biggest con is probably like the the small risk of like having an accident. Yeah, but that's why I would say that, that I would put them like in the middle of nowhere. I think that there should be like rules on that. I don't think they should be anywhere near like cities or anything like that. The only thing is, um, because of the urban sprawl, at some point soon, the middle of no- there is not yeah, yeah, yeah. In the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but like, we have to find renewable energy sources that are like comparable with the living standards that we're going to have to deal with in the next few years, and also are affordable for like the masses. Yeah, I think eventually soon, though, I, renewable energy is going to become more affordable than fossil fuels. But I'm not sure when, but I think that would. But the thing is, I hope that doesn't happen because fossil fuels get so expensive that the renewables are more affordable. You know, I hope it's like. That the renew- why wouldn't that be good? What? Why, why would it be like that? Well, I, I mean, because that because like so many people still rely on fossil fuels, right? even like hospitals right and like ICUs and stuff and like so many you know like even uh trucks and things like that which so if like like right now because the gas prices are so high it makes every like even food and like all these things right so even if you personally don't use fossil fuels like you're paying the price for it right so there was the trucker movement well you know with the 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 convoys there was one in bc a few months ago because of the insane price for groceries to like get groceries to grocery stores so we're already seeing the effect of it but i think that if i don't think they're going to 
increase the price like by that much in the next few years until they find a way to properly subsidize and like trans like make the transition from fossil to clean energy um more affordable for people yeah i think what would what would be like optimal is that that price of renewable energy would just keep getting cheaper and cheaper so then people would just say like i might as well or even if they don't care yeah let's say the like in 10 years or something that like electric cars are just cheaper or solar panels are cheaper than having, I don't know, like oil to heat up your house. Then people will just say I might as well, right? Because I'm saving money. So that would be like great. In my, I think that that would be like the goal. For sure. And I think we're also discussing this from like very much a Western standpoint. There's a lot of countries that aren't going to have these transitions as fast because of how like even more dependent on fossil fuels they are. So I think that it's definitely a case by case on a case by case basis on like the prices and the speed and the efficiency of the energy that they're transitioning to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also with, I guess, with the Arctic and all that, that, you know, (laughs) hopefully, um, you know, that like renewable energy will kind of win before people want to start, you know, like when the Arctic starts to melt and because apparently there's like a third of the world's, um oil reserves are in like the arctic or something like that yeah yeah it's there's a lot of there there's a lot of places that are definitely just like on top of fossil fuels that if if people had to extract them it would not be fun for anybody living near there yeah and um also do you think people who deny climate change do that because like ignorance is bliss or do you think that some people actually think it's just like a straight up lie? I think that there's different types of deniers. So you have some that use like the economic argument, like it's go- they recognize that climate change is real, but they say it's going to cost too much to fix. So right. we might as well wait until it comes and then deal with those consequences. Then you also have the argument, like the science argument, where just people flat out deny that it's real. They, they question the science. They question whether or not it was peer-reviewed. Um, then they start to cherry-pick the numbers and use a bunch of different things to just make the stats like the, look false, like or look falsified. But then I think you also have like humanitarian denial. So people saying like climate change is actually good for us because it's getting warmer, we're able to have more crops. So there's definitely different different types of deniers. And you also have like political ones. So like we can't take action because other countries can't. So that's what we were talking about earlier with the US withdrawing from the accords. And finally, like crisis denial, like we shouldn't, like we'll be better. Like, like I mentioned, oh, sorry, the crisis denial is that like we'll be better equipped in the future. And then, um, yeah. So pretty much long answer to your question. I think that deniers exist for a bunch of different reasons. Usually it's because of the conditions in which they were raised and where they work. So just their environment. And it's difficult to change people's opinions until you directly affect their lives with something. I think it's also just the fact that if you do think that it's a lie, like you would probably be a lot happier. <laughs> you know, like if you if you just tell yourself every day, like, yeah, it's like whatever, you know, it's all fake, then like you never have to think about it. Right. You could just yeah. go with your day and like take a you know deep breaths. And so I I think that could be part of it too. That they're just like trying to avoid like having to deal with it like emotionally. 
Yeah, for sure. I know that compre- like comprehending your mortality is a psychological evolutionary barrier for, barrier for most species. So it's definitely difficult for people to think about like possible possible death. And if you look at like how religion started, people need answers to unanswerable questions in order to feel safe and to like prevent chaos. So by being a denier, you're preventing that chaos in your life by just not allowing other people to speak of potential other alternative answers to that question. Yeah. And now to to end it off on a, a positive note, <laughs> um, what are some things you think we could be optimistic about in our, in our uh, fight against climate change? So I think we could be really optimistic about different industries. So looking at how they're making changes to be more inclusive of people that are directly affected by climate change and other issues, looking at how they're changing their practices to be more environmentally conscious. And like you mentioned a lot, like looking at the next generation, they are going to be the ones that are taking action and that we're hoping are going to take action. So I think as much as I said, performative activism bothers me at the beginning of this, seeing how many people want to at least have some type of activism is something that's reassuring because it's not like everybody is just passively looking at the world go through all of these different movements they recognize that there are issues that need to be addressed so I think that we could be um happy and we could look towards the future and recognize that not everybody is like sees this problem and decides to be ignorant that people actually do care about it and people are passionate about making sure that they have better lives and that everybody around them and future generations also have better lives Yeah, that, that's good. I think that's a good way to uh, to end it <laughs> without like having, you know, like a sour taste in your mouth or something. <laughs> exactly. After all that, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of those articles, you know, like when you finish, you're super depressed for the rest of the day. <laughs> I didn't want, I didn't want to have that effect on people. So no, for sure. For sure. It's like a happily ever after the end ending. And there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, thank you uh, so much for uh, being on the show today. Thank you again for having me. It was very fun.